Well, happy Easter to all of you. Nice to see you. We've been celebrating um, all weekend uh, and all over the East Bay. I just got a text from our children's ministry folks in the Hayward campus. My son Andrew is actually working in the preschool, uh, and he, he just texted me. He said, Dad, we got some work to do in Hayward uh, during preschooler story time. We just learned that Judas turned Jesus in, and a kid responded, turned him into a frog. Nailed it. <laughs> so we'll work on that as we go along. Your kids are getting a great education in our church. <laughs> so we better get our Bibles open. Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Today we conclude this three-month study in the first gospel that was ever written. And we opened this book in January with John the Baptist who was saying, hey, look, it's Jesus. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And on Friday we celebrated that, that Jesus had done just that. We gathered on Friday and our preachers all reminded us why we call it Good Friday, that Jesus' suffering was a good thing. And we understand that, but on the first Friday none of them understood that. On that terrible afternoon as their beloved teacher was on the, on the cross, they couldn't do anything. The Romans were, I mean, it was brutal what was happening to Christ. None of his disciples said, yeah, but that's a, that's a good thing. This is going according to the, the plan. It didn't seem good at all to them. They were grief-stricken. They were confused. They were afraid for their own lives. And they didn't imagine they'd ever see their beloved teacher again because his death came as a complete surprise to them. Even though he had warned them over and again, when you read through the Gospels, you see him telling them very specifically. He says, when I get to Jerusalem, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested, condemned, turned over to the Romans to be mocked and flogged. They're going to execute me by crucifixion. And then on the third day, I will be raised to life. Now, we read that, and that's very clear we think that when they heard him say it, it was so morbid, so terrible that their brains just uh, dismissed it out of hand, uh, as if he was just telling another one of his parables that they didn't understand. Not that this was going to really happen. At one point, Simon Peter even scolded Jesus for talking like this. I mean, how could he be expected to understand about Christ's death at that moment in time, that, that, that the Father sent the Son? The son came willingly and went to the cross of his own volition uh, because uh, he knew that we needed saving. But that's Good Friday. Let's talk about what happened on that Sunday morning. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? See, these three same women had been at the cross on Friday. They had seen then the men take his lifeless body down, wrap it, and lay it in this cave in this nearby garden. So now it's Sunday and they've, they, they, they've returned. His death had been a surprise to them, but they're now in for the biggest surprise of all, Verse four, where they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. 
As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? Now go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They were in shock. The other gospel writers tell us what happened next. The women rushed back to the house. They told all the men, they told everyone, here's what we saw. Jesus isn't there. The men didn't believe them. Peter and John raced back to the tomb to confirm that Jesus' body was gone. Mary Magdalene lingered at the tomb. She came back and just was there. And that's when she was the first to see Jesus, the first to speak with him and talk, uh, worship him. Later, later that afternoon, Jesus uh, went and walked with a couple of men who had left the city that were grieving his death. Then when they ate and he broke the bread, they recognized him. Then he disappeared. Then he appeared again. He's got this, this new resurrection body. He's, he's showing us what our bodies will be like someday. He walks right through this, this door, and the disciples are there really hiding, uh, trying to figure out what has just happened. Now Christ's body's missing, and now these women are saying that they've seen him, and then Jesus appears. And, uh, and, 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 and spends time with them. He spent time with them off and on for the next seven weeks. For the rest of their lives after that, these, these, these people went out and, 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 and declared to the world that Jesus had died on the cross for a reason. And then he had defeated death, taking our sins upon himself on a Friday and burying them. He came back to life to prove that it was really true. He came back to life to open a portal for us so that we also could become immortals. That's what Christians celebrate at Easter. The rest of the stuff's fun. The, the Easter eggs, the bunny that poops in your yard, the kids pick it up, they eat it, you let them do that. Deviled eggs, for some reason, that's the weirdest thing. They're good though. Uh, I honestly think that we eat ham and I think it's, it's an old way that Gentiles were being rude. Anyway, you'll figure that one out. Uh, but that's not our celebration. That's just the accoutrements of our celebration. Our celebration is the death and resurrection of Christ because that's the linchpin of our faith. We believe it really happened in real history. If it didn't happen, people should feel sorry for us. Our faith is meaningless. If Jesus' death was just another unfair execution, then his death really didn't purchase payment for our sins. And if that didn't happen, then we will someday pay for our sins. And if Jesus' resurrection didn't really happen, then our resurrection won't really happen, and heaven is a joke. It's just something we say when someone dies. Oh, they're in a better place, we really don't know, blah, blah, blah. If he didn't accomplish these things as a part of real history, then there's no good news to our gospel, because sin still condemns us, and death still awaits us, and after death, the judgment. Like the apostle Paul wrote, if Christ is not risen, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ hasn't been raised, then you're still in your sins. If Christ is not alive, then people should pity you for believing that he is. On the other hand, if Christ is alive, then we have a lot to celebrate today. 
But how do we know it really happened? We don't. We weren't there. We know it in the same way that we know other things that happened when we weren't there, when we weren't born yet, from eyewitnesses. And there were plenty of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. So an intelligent person could put their faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a list of hundreds of people who were still living. Corinthians is written 25 years later after the death and resurrection of Christ. A lot of those people were still alive. Paul says, I know their names. You can look them up and talk to them. They saw him. They talked to him. Many of them eventually suffered because they refused to back down on the story when Rome started threatening people. One of the greatest proofs of the resurrection of Jesus is, that, is actual history is how many original eyewitnesses even went to their death, choosing martyrdom over changing their story. Of the 11 apostles, 10 of them were killed for saying that Jesus died on a Roman cross on Friday for the forgiveness of sins, and he rose again on a Sunday, making him Lord instead of Caesar. Not one of those eyewitnesses ever wavered on their story, so we choose to, to believe them because we believe eyewitnesses. That's not the only reason we believe. We also believe for just how the stories themselves are written. They just read like true stories. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that's crazy is that the stories quote women and use women as the primary identifiers as the re of the resurrection of Christ, the primary witnesses that come forward to testify to it. Uh, historians confirm that back then women weren't considered it's, it's really too bad, but they were considered mentally inferior. And it was like you, you wouldn't call a woman to a witness stand at a trial. If a man didn't see it, if a man didn't testify to it, well, then it probably didn't happen. Now, that's terrible, but that's true. So these people that wrote these stories in the first centuries, why in the world would they put women forward as key witnesses of this thing, especially a woman like Mary from Magdala? In Magdala, Mary had been known as someone who was certifiably insane and demonically possessed. She wasn't even allowed in synagogue. And yet she's the primary witness in all four of these gospel accounts. If you were making up a story, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put her forward as your evidence. You'd find someone more reliable. We also believe the story for another reason. You can just see how it changed these believers who eventually changed the world. Before Christ's death and resurrection, they were, there was this group that hardly even got along with one another. After the resurrection of Christ, they were bonded so closely together, they loved one another, that actually the Lord had to put great persecution on Jerusalem just to get them to break up and go to the other places in the world. And they loved the world so much that that's what they were known for in Roman history. The Romans couldn't figure them out because it seems like the more of them that they persecuted, the, the, the more love that came out of these Christians. As they were killing the Christians, the Christians were forgiving them, just like Jesus had done on the cross. What they said and did was great testimony to the, the power of Christ's death and resurrection to change people. We also believe it because... Well, none of Christ's enemies in the first century ever refuted it. Jesus had powerful enemies in Jerusalem. So when after his death, his disciples were preaching in public about his resurrection, all the authorities would have had to do would be produce a body. But they couldn't. They didn't. 
must have been so frustrating for these guys who had orchestrated Christ's death to have the apostle Peter and the gang out on the street explaining the resurrection to thousands of people. And as you read the story, you begin to realize Peter is not convincing the crowd that Jesus rose from the dead. He's explaining to them why Jesus rose from the dead. Everyone in Jerusalem knew that somehow Jesus of Nazareth had come back from death. That was common knowledge. So when the authorities even dragged them in and told Peter and John to knock it off, Peter and John said, hey, we're not the ones on trial. You're the guys who killed the Son of God. And now that he's living again, you probably ought to consider that and think about what we're preaching to you. And you also ought to convert to our faith because he's the Jewish Messiah. Now what's fascinating is the authorities didn't refute the disciples even to their face that Jesus had risen from the dead. Why? Because they knew it was true. Remember, the guards came to the authorities and said, here's what happened. And they said, well, you guys need to hush up. Tell them we stole, you know, the body was stolen, whatever. So they concocted this story that had all these holes in it. But they had heard from the Roman guards that Jesus was alive. The best they could do with Peter and John was tell them to shut up. And when that's all government has, when all government can do is just tell you to shut up, you're winning. How do you frighten men who are not afraid to die? So because of their testimony, because of how the book is written, because of how it changed their lives, because no one refuted it in the first century, we have enough evidence to believe that, the, that, that it really occurred. And then when we read our scripture, we read why it occurred. The death of Christ was to pardon our sins and the resurrection of Christ guarantees our immortality. Hallelujah. So this afternoon when you're at a meal and you know, you're with someone who didn't go to church today and you know, they do their thing, you know, how is church? <laughs> you know, they're kind of patting you on the head for your faith. <laughs> you can say it was great. And, and you, if you wanna know, there was just like one sentence that we learned today. You wanna hear one sentence? And they're all gonna say, yeah, okay. And you're gonna say the death of Christ was to pardon our sins. So my sins are pardoned. <laughs> and the resurrection of Christ guarantees my immortality. <laughs> Let's practice. <laughs> what was the death of Christ for? And what was the resurrection of Christ do? Well, see, that's something to celebrate. I said that's something to celebrate. <laughs> Here's how the Apostle Paul says it. We were once dead in our sins. That's like my sister used to say before my mom and dad would come home. Oh, you're dead. <laughs> we were once dead in our sins, but God made us alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins. Not some of them, all of them. Look up and down the aisles. There were some people in this room that had pulled some, some stuff that they wouldn't want you to know about. God knows about it, and because they have said Forgive me of my sins. He did. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Now, Paul is a lawyer, so he writes like one, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Wow. Jesus said it. He said, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. Simple as that. Even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus said, hey, John, fear not. 
I, I am the first, I am the last, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in my hand. So what happens to Christians is the fear of death is removed for us. We don't have to worry about what happens after our death. We just have to kind of not look forward to the process leading up to our death. <laughs> but because we're not afraid of death, we're freed up to live now. We're, 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 we're no longer afraid of death, making us no longer afraid of life. Think of all the things that, that, that bring you fear. You know, Jesus could take all of those things away if you'd let him. Read what the writer of Hebrews says about this. Through death, Christ destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and released those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We're the people who've been released. We're the ones who are no longer subject to bondage. There is no addiction that can hold you when Jesus Christ takes charge of your life. The only way you would go back into that addiction is if you would choose to. Jesus is a bondage breaker. So we're not just promised life after death, we're promised life after conversion. Our life was like death. Now we can have a fearless life, a brave life, a hopeful life, a life full of discovering our purpose. A woman yesterday, she said, yeah, she said, my friends, they all tell me that I live in a bubble. And she said, yeah, I, I do. She says, I live in a bubble of hope. She said, the old bubble I lived in was pretty toxic. And she said, I, I, of course I do. I, I'm surrounded by an atmosphere of hope. And why? Because the Holy Spirit is around me. He's in me. No matter how much I messed up in the past, no matter how far from God I once strayed, he has secured my redemption. And he's opened the gateway to heaven. That's why he calls himself a gate or a door. Do you remember that time Jesus said, I'm the door. This is cool because if you're into sci-fi at all, that, that's the same word as portal. I'm the portal from a dimension to another dimension. Only this isn't fiction. He's the door. He's the one. He's the gateway into eternity. And, and what happens is we enter that door while we are still walking around in these bodies. So you are already immortal. That's not bad. Now, today will be the first time that some people confess that out loud for the first time. It's been happening all weekend. It's the coolest thing. Got an email about midnight. Read it this morning. Dear Steve, it said. It was written to Steve Engle. Dear Steve, I'm so glad Pastor Steve had people stand at the end of the service. I've been listening to these invitations for 20 years and Cornerstone and Jesus never gave up on me. I'm in. I also believe. Yesterday, a woman stood in one of our services, and people recognized her from grief care because she, her mother had passed away this year, and, and in her grief, she saw her father was just spiraling. So she said, well, let's go to that grief care thing at your church. So she brought her, her dad to grief care and sat through grief care. She's not a follower of Christ. She's just a really good daughter. Yesterday, she stood and said, I'm now a believer. I'm gonna see my mom in heaven. I'm gonna make my mom proud today, Easter 2018. I also 
believe. Wow. One of the cool things... One of the cool things Jesus called himself, we studied a month ago, it was in Mark chapter 10, you might remember this. Jesus says, the son of man came to give his life as, what's the word? Ransom. What's a ransom? What's a ransom? It's a payment for somebody's freedom, right? Jesus paid a price for our freedom. Maybe today will be the day when you accept the ransom payment when you admit the bondage and ask to be freed from it, when you decide to not just believe it happened in your head, but to believe it with your heart, making the promise personal between Jesus and you, especially the promise that his death was in your place, that he took your punishment, that his resurrected life not only proves that his promises are true, but it opened a portal for you to enter into immortality that your physical death will not be the end of you because his resurrection becomes your resurrection and he has gone to prepare a place for you like he promised. So Christ followers, we really do live enviable lives. Knowing Jesus in his death and his resurrection far surpasses anything else, that, that even any good thing that could happen to us. Paul, Paul said, I had a lot of good things happen to me, but I count it all for loss when I compare it to the, 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 the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Once you know Jesus, and I'm talking about knowing him personally, then life falls into place. All the bad stuff, you go, okay, right? But then all the good stuff as well, you go, well, that's not really what life was about either. It's like everything reprioritizes around the fact that you have started loving Jesus back. That's what coming to faith in Jesus really is, is to start to love him back. He already loves you. Think about that. He loves you. There's times when you don't even love you. It's love that compelled God the Father to send the Son to earth. It's love that compelled the son to come to earth. It's love that compelled the son to, to put up with people for 33 years. And then this terrible uh, ending to his life. It's love that held Jesus' hands and feet to that cross. Angels were ready to roll. And Jesus, wow, oh, I love these people. The Bible says that God's love is so mysterious that the angels can't even figure it out. It says they long to look into these things. It's like they're watching us. They see us all the time, even when we wish they weren't looking. And they go, why does he love these bucketheads? They're disobedient, they're faithless. And Jesus says, I, it's called unconditional love. It's unearned, it's inexhaustible, it's eternal. You know what, he loved you before you ever did anything lovable. He loves you even though you've done things that would have driven a lesser God away or caused, an, uh, caused a worse God to, to punish you already. God has loved you more faithfully than you've ever even loved yourself. His, his love for you is not logical, but it's real. You'll never be able to repay him, but he doesn't ask for repayment. He does ask that you receive it that you actively receive his mercy and his grace, that you admit your need for it and receive it, and then you believe that what he did on the cross and then what happened at that tomb actually applies 
to you. You know, I wish I could convince everyone who hears my voice when I preach these sermons, I wish I could convince you to start loving Jesus back. Be so good for you. But it's not my job to convince you. My job is just to, to, to spread it out there, and I think I've done my job today, and now I step back and I allow the Holy Spirit to do the work that he's already been doing in you as he's been wooing you to himself. That's the beauty of our God. He doesn't scare us into heaven. He, he loves us into heaven. Well, I struggled all week with a clever ending for this sermon. Uh, you know, I'm tired of the chocolate bunny thing, and I was just ready for something else, and just like, ah, just struggling. And finally, yesterday morning, the Holy Spirit just was like, have you ever, does God ever kind of talk to you like, just kind of shaking his head like, whatever, you know? And that's what I was feeling. I'm like, what, you know? And he's like, why are you trying to be clever? The story stands on its own. You don't have to, just lay it out there. Holy Spirit said, just back away. You're not the closer, Steve. I'm the closer. <laughs> so this is how we end the service. We've been doing it all weekend. We're gonna close the service by me praying that some of you will have courage. And then after I pray, Everyone in the congregation who already believes everything I've been saying, you're just gonna say the two words, I believe. And do you think you can do that? All right. Then, after you say, I believe, there are gonna be some people in this room, in the chapel, in the overflow, in the courtyard, who are gonna jump up and in front of everybody say, I also believe. Now, that's a risky thing for a preacher to do. You know, most of us preachers, here's what we like to do it. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. <laughs> if anyone wants to, just slip your hand up and put it right back down. And see, that way the pastor can just, you know, he can go, I see that hand, I see that hand. Everybody's like, eh. and then somebody cheats, they look around, I don't see any hands. <laughs> you know, the pastor's like, yes. You know, these poor families in the front row. You know. They just feel sorry for their dad. <laughs> no, this is riskier than that. We like to do it like that around here because we've come to believe that in the East Bay, California, uh, San Francisco, you know, USA, if you can't stand in front of a group of people as accepting as this and say, I believe in Jesus, you're gonna just fall flat on Monday. And it just won't take. So we're doing it for your sake. It's time to be brave. Let me pray for you. And here we go. Father, they know who they are because you've already been wooing them to yourself. And it's their moment. And I pray that they would have the courage to not let it pass them by. We all pray for them that they would have the courage that we once had to have the first time that we said, I also believe. So now I pray for whoever it is in these auditoriums of ours, whoever it is that, that is ready to say the death of Christ was for my sin, the resurrection of Christ is for my eternity. Jesus, come into my life, forgive me of my sin, which I freely confess. Save me, redeem me, ransom me, Take away my fear so that I can really live the life you call me to live. Lord, give them the courage to do what we have done. 
and give him the courage now. Amen. You ready? Now all the believers, say it with me. I believe. I believe. Oh, look at you. <laughs> Who else? Where? There you are. Who else? I can hear you. I can't see you. There you are. Hi. Oh, let's stand with them. Let's believe with them. Jesus, come into our hearts. Jesus, we believe. We also believe. If there was anyone right now that was afraid, now we're all standing. If anyone else wants to shout out, I also believe. <laughs> come into my heart, Lord Jesus. We all relive that moment, but this is their moment. And Lord, I pray that their lives would change forever after this moment, that they have confessed publicly their faith in you. Go with us now into all of our family gatherings, everything we have planned for today. Help us to celebrate with full hearts, with the burdens taken off of our back, the weight of sin, We love you, Christ. We thank you for Good Friday, and we thank you for Resurrection Sunday. We believe, we believe, we believe, we believe. And all God's people shouted, Amen. Amen. <sighs>